0: What's up everyone, welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio, it's me, your boy Dan Evans, I'm joined by the boy Dr. Kieran Smith, what's up Kieran?
1: Alright Dan, how's it going?
0: Not bad son, you okay?
1: Yeah, got a bit of deja vu. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Unfortunately, Nathan can't be with us this week guys, he is in quarantine, he's caught uh, an as yet unspecified disease, his skin has come up in boils, some of his skin's fallen off, his hair's fallen out. His nose has cr- started to crumble away and his fingernails and his his toenails have fallen out. Mm. But a- apart, from that,
1: apart from that, he's fine. He's though. fine
0: and he's, he seems in good spirits. So if you want to send him a card, say, Get Well Soon Nath, send it to the usual address. Or you can tweet us, Get Well Soon Nath at Desolation Wales. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's he's going to be fine. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. Um, okay, so this week we're going to talk about the BBC. We're going to be joined by our very good friend and comrade, Dr. Tom Mills. Now, Tom is the author of the book, the BBC, The Myth of a Public Service, which is sold extremely well. Um, This
1: sounds like an episode that we've done
0: before. (laughs) Uh, And of course, last year, we had Tom on, uh, or not last year, two years ago now, 2018, 2018, um, we had Tom on to talk about the problems of the BBC uh, then. It was a a fantastic episode, and you should go back and listen to it now. Um, As a heads up, there's it was a part of our old format so there's about 15 20 minutes of me ranting about well no,
1: there's 25 minutes of,
0: you. <laughs> of me ranting about the uh plcmer leadership so if you're not interested in that um skip forward to when we actually interview Tom if you are interested in it um if you are interested in listening to me you're like my entirely correct as ever predictions <laughs> about plcmer go back and listen to it so yeah we did an episode with Tom you might be asking why we're doing a sequel uh, and the answer is obviously well <laughs> Essentially all the things that Tom predicted in his in his book and in the episode back in twenty eighteen have not just sort of come to the fore and been proven correct. It seems as if it's been yeah the issues have been turbocharged. And the interesting thing about this election I think that is that most of us on the left, whether you're in Wales or, you know, across the UK, would probably agree that the BBC has not had an absolute shocker and it for many people it was the scales have finally fallen off off their eyes and they've started to you know people have been saying holy shit like <laughs> they're yeah. just not even trying they're not even st- trying anymore uh, A number mm-hmm. of high publicized incidents which have led to the complete erosion of faith in the bbc on the left um and so it's really important to you know discuss how do we get you and where do we go f- where do we go from here and so we're going to be joined by tom so hope you enjoy hope you enjoy the conversation Tom, thanks so much for joining us, mate. Um, congratulations on your news night appearance. We had some comments from some of our, our listeners asking for recommendations on how you get your hair. Looking so nice all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Was it any. long? I think I, I've had a haircut since then. I think, um, yeah. Lustrous and, and nice. Yeah. Any tips for anyone before?
2: No, just to, like... I, my only tip would be just get your hair cut before you go on, on the TV. But, like, I just... Uh, we, we were talking about this before we started, but I didn't really have a lot of notice. It was a, a little bit last minute. But obviously, if I knew I was going to be in TV, I'd go and get my hair cut. But, um, you know, these things happen. We're nice clothes as well. That would have been. Oh, uh... <laughs> <No>, you were not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Exactly. I would have got myself a new shirt as well. <laughs> no, you, you look. You, look um, you know, it's an emergency situation. You know, when the BBC calls, you've got to jump. So.
0: Yeah. We're very glad for you to, you know, that you join this because we figure that very soon you're going to become this, like, burned out husk of a man who's just absolutely hates talking about the BBC and hates everything so uh, get get you well <laughs> you still got some used- like
2: emotionally exhausted by the whole thing like yeah, over the course of the election I mean we're gonna get into that but like I wrote something for Jacobin and like I wrote it of the mindset of this is the last thing. I'm going to write about the BBC, you know, like a, like a, like I was giving a eulogy, basically. <laughs> and, um, but after, after I wrote that, it was, it was like it ended up being a really long piece. They asked me to write it, and then I said, look, I can't really write it because they, we we were on strike. There was a UCU yeah. strike, and and you know, it's like an impact thing. I mean, it's not really like research, but like it's obviously related to to my book. And so I said, look, I'm on strike, so I, I can't really do it. And then I think, I I don't know, like I started it like a few weeks after they asked me and they asked for a few thousand words and just went on and on and on. But yeah, I was just like, Oh my God, this is just ridiculous. But I I basically, I wrote that and people could find it. Like if you, if you want to read it, but it's basically. Um, okay. oh, describing the last days the yeah, it's called the last days of the BBC. It's Yeah, it's called the last days of the BBC, which gives, <laughs> gives you a vibe, the vibe, of the sort of mood I was in when I wrote it. But yeah, honestly, like when I wrote that, I was just like, right, that—that's my sort of <laughs> parting, like <laughs> uh, on the last is new. And yeah. funny enough, like people have been much more interested in talking about the BBC, like s- since then, and 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 since the election than then they have been for, you know, like, I mean, I wrote the book, like, yeah, it came out like three years ago, I think. So, and there'd be a new edition, like, because also Versa contacted me in the new year saying, oh, you know, we, we want to do a new edition. So, basically, the long and short of it is that I was thinking in December this would be it, I can, I can draw a line under the BBC, but it's not going to happen. I'm going to be the, yeah, the eternal... Um, please pay attention to the evidence on the BBC guy, and it's just um, yeah, it's an yeah. endless happy future.
0: It's like uh, constantly explaining GCSE sociology, sociologists like performatively ignorant BBC journalists <laughs> you get, like. will be like Mel Brooks, and the producers You're just going <laughs> to keep going and going and going and going. Anyway, it's, it's
2: never ending. But like, I think you know, you just need to resign yourself to your fate. Sometimes it's resisting it that causes the anxiety. Yeah, that's true. Just,
0: just embrace it. This the warm. Sort of uh, release of it. Do
2: you think? Do you actually think
1: any senior journalists at the BBC read the book? And if no, they, I know
0: you
2: didn't. Think, no. I know didn't. No, there's no way they did. I mean, I remember. Well, it's not. It's not really about me or my book. But like, one thing I do remember annoyed me slightly, and this is this is going to sound a little bit self indulgent, but like, people sometimes like have a go at like people like Rob Burley on Twitter. Um, for people who don't know, like Rob Burley is director of BBC Live programs. And he's one of the people who engages more directly with people um, online about, like, say, allegations of bias and so on. So so people often tag me into that kind kind of wow. stuff or, like, maybe they sort of flag up mm-hmm. my book to, to to kind of, you know, win arguments and stuff like that. So I see a lot of that in my mentions. I remember, like, quite a while ago now, like, this guy was just like, um, yeah, yeah, you should read this book. And he was like, no, you're all right it was <laughs> just like just complete complete indifference you know just just didn't give a shit basically but like at the time i was a bit like yeah that's annoying but like people say annoying things all the time but the thing which sort of struck me about it was wasn't that oh you know he should read my book it was just like if i was a g- the, the guy at the bbc who like went online and and argued about bias yeah, I would probably like read some of the books which dealt yeah. with it. Not just mine, but like they, you know, there are other ones which make claims about BBC bias on the right because like his his basic thing is that uh, you know we get attacked from all sides, so therefore you know we must get in, things right. So that, you know, there's a book by a couple of books actually by a guy called Rob Aitken who used to be at the BBC, and he's produced like different variations of a book called Can We Trust the BBC? Which you know, basically comes at it with the thesis of yeah, the BBC is like left and and liberal. I guess that kind of argument you'd be familiar with. I mean, I don't know if he's read that. I'd be interested to know. But my my, my pure guess is that no, nobody from the BBC um, has read my book. They don't. They don't seem particularly interested. But you never know. They could be secretly reading it.
0: Rob Burley is my favourite addition to the new sort of BBC Marvel like Marvel universe sort of thing. He's a, he's an excellent. <laughs> so you should definitely check him out because I've often genuinely thought that he must be a parody. I won't talk about the what <laughs> the Robert Zanz thing. There was an, an incident where Rob Burley was forced to deny that he'd like shaved his son Cyril and placed him in the in a question time audience, which is one of the the more enjoyable bits of the uh, election coverage. But we'll go on to the debrief. Um how bad was it for the BBC Tom? Because we were just we were reading your article earlier and we were sort of going through the the ridiculous amount of Incidents, which in the, just one of them would have been shocking, but there was just so many. There was, you know, th- let's go through them. Is the Boris Johnson cenotaph uh, footage where contemporary disheveled Boris Johnson was replaced with an older, dashing Boris Johnson uh, footage of when he was mayor of London, placing down a wreath for Remembrance Sunday. You then have the question time leadership special where someone asked Boris Johnson, how important is it for all politicians to tell the truth, or some variety of that, which drew like derisory laughter from the audience because mm-hmm. who knows that Boris Johnson always just lies, and then when the BBC when it came out, the BBC had edited out the laughter basically and just puts in this like statesman like response. Then you've got Laura Koonsberg tweeting about <coughs> a conservative activist or. Advisor to was it Matt Hancock being Mm -hmm. assaulted? His bad, yeah, special, special advisor at Leeds General Hospital. Then you've got the Andrew Neil. I mean, I can't believe. I mean, then you've got the Andrew Neil non-interview fiasco, where he interviews Nicholas Sturgeon, then Jeremy Corbyn, and like rips them to shreds. And then obviously those two leaders have gone on with the implicit understanding that it's going to be fair, and Boris Johnson is going to be interviewed as well. Then it emerges that he's obviously got no interest in. In going on at all, and that just never happens. And, he, and then he goes on the Andrew Marr show where they softball him after a terrorist attack, basically. Then you've got the, <laughs> then you've got the Laurel Coonspig talking about postal votes midway through uh, on the election, on the day of the election, basically saying, Oh, it doesn't look good for Labour, which presumably is, we, everyone was like, Well, that's illegal. Surely you can't talk about postal votes, um, during the election coverage. Yeah, the, um,
2: the Electoral Commission put out a statement which didn't name, um, Laura Kinsberg or the BBC, but confirmed that it was illegal to discuss, um, postal votes ahead of the poll. And, and, uh, then the BBC put out a statement later saying that they didn't believe that their political editor had broken the law. That, that, that I think was the last kind of, um, scandal, BBC scandal of the, from what I remember, unless you've got another one.
0: No. And then the other one was obviously that always, always in the background is the anti-Semitism issue, which is probably too big yeah. a topic to, to cover in this episode or podcast alone. So how, look, how bad was it? Because the interesting thing for me, I think a lot of people is, you know, we read your book, you know, it's fantastic, but it still seemed as if there was some form of a, a step change in this election that mm. it just we ramped up. The bias seemed to be ramped up to such a massive degree. So do you think, I mean, do you think there was a mass, like a, a qualitative difference or change? Or is it just a symptom of what you described in your book? I mean, I, I think it was re- I mean, first of all, I think it was a really bad
2: election for the BP7. There's no, there's no point in pretending otherwise. I mean, these were a series of like, you know, disastrous, scandalous. Let's let's call them errors because we don't yeah. know the details of, um, of a lot of the incidents. I mean, there's no point pretending that they weren't outrageous. And in the context of an election, which you know, the BBC, you know, for for all its faults and for all the way it has a particular kind of understanding of, you know, how how democracy should function has generally taken that kind of responsibility seriously. Like with, with, with obviously various provisos around like, you know, what legitimate opinion is and, you know, the role of the secret state and so on, which should things that I go into in the book. Like generally the BBC has justified itself politically by reference to the sort of democratic life of the nation and so on. So like to, to, to to make so many, yeah, let's call them errors over the course of an election seems to me to be just absolutely extraordinary. Is it part of the prevailing pattern at, at the BBC? I mean, I wrote the book, but really all of the book was written before, um, you know, the rise of Corbynism, if we're, if we're still calling yeah. it that. And I think, you know, the, the, the analysis fits, but I don't think we can sort of isolate this particular election from, What's gone on in the interim? So, or the, I think part of the reason it, it felt so intense at the election—I mean, there was a few things. Like, number one, obviously the stakes got very, very high, right? And and people just couldn't believe that um, you know the BBC was performing so poorly in such serious circumstances. And like, yeah, e- even I was very shocked by it. Like, um, I mean, not not overly surprised, but generally like, sometimes just like, wow, you know? Like, I mean, with. And particularly with you know the the um, the Andrew Neil step, I mean, I couldn't believe it, you know, because it's you know it's one thing to have these kind of disastrous um, mishaps, let's say, but to make an editorial decision like that, and and one which was clearly going to be very politically partisan, in the context of all the other errors, just seemed like the BBC has just you know completely lost the plot. Um, but all of that said, I think it's. It's it's consistent with the way I think that it's treated the the Labour Party over the last three years, Um, and and that itself is also consistent with um, what I argue with the book in terms of the overriding sort of um, structure and culture of the BBC. So, what? So yeah, like a lot of the analysis was before the rise of Corbyn, but like there were two main sort of elements to what I argue about the BBC and like number one was its very close relationship to the British state, which has lots of different elements to it, obviously. Um, And also it's like embeddedness within the broader establishment, but let's say just more narrowly the British state. And number two, the ways in which the BBC became much more embedded in the kind of new liberal pro-business kind of common sense. Well, if you think of the sort of sociology at the rise of Corbynism um, you know, if we, if we can identify that as a political movement, it had two particular drivers to it. It had the anti-austerity, um, movement. I mean, it was the student movement as well, but that sort of overlapped a lot with the anti-austerity movement. And it had the older, um, sort of anti-war kind of contingent to it. And, and Corbyn obviously himself, like personally comes from the anti-war movement. There are people of my, my kind of age where that's very core, particularly with your relationship to institutions like the BBC, uh, the British state and, and the Labour Party, obviously. Um, and then, yeah, the, the anti-austerity element. Well, the point I was going to make was that if you think about the sort of institutional DNA of the BBC, in terms of where it stands, let's say where I left it with the book, two thousand and sixteen, which in many ways felt like a very sort of apolitical moment, um, or at least the point at which I finished the research for the book. That, then Corbynism kicks off, and then given the analysis in the book as to what kind of organisation I say the BBC is, how would we respect expect it to respond to Corbynism? Like I exactly how it did right which is that you know this this organization this movement sorry is 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 completely anathema to to this sort of um the culture of the organization and I think we've seen that I mean I've, I've, I try to be a little bit careful about sort of pronouncing about bias and stuff and sometimes that annoys people on the left but the reason I do that is that you know everybody has their own impressions I mean I don't think there's any doubt that the BBC was sort of biased against Corbyn in some sense but like I usually try to reserve my comments for like you know, published research where you can sort of compare one thing or another, um, but there are very, very clear instances. I mean, what I mean, it's just I think it's been kind of a joke at stages. But like to, to take very specific, you know, researched areas. You, know, you you mentioned anti antisemitism earlier. I remember Laura Coonsberg tweeting at one stage that that Islamophobia in the Conservative Party and antisemitism in the Labour Party just feels like it's of a different different magnitude. Yeah. There's there's no there's no evidence for that, of course. And they've not bothered to actually particularly look at statistics, which might reveal the extent of the thing. So I don't know if you saw the study that came out, Bad News for Labour. Yeah. They interviewed people. um, They did a poll and they did some focus groups and they found that, you know, people tended to think that 30% of the Labour Party had been disciplined for anti-Semitism. Yeah. Um, and the real rate is something like 0.08%. 0, 0, 0. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's an extraordinary disparity. You know, if you think of like, people's public perceptions of particular social problems that get shaped by the media, they tend to be exaggerated. You know, like there's obvious stuff like, um, yeah, like crime and um, asylum seekers, immigration, Um, you know, the more old school ones like single mothers and like, you know, how many, how many people are there claiming benefits or whatever? They're all, they're all, they're all topics that people are misinformed on. But on this, on the anti and stuff, I mean, it's just stratospheric. And that is obviously a consequence of, of the media, including the BBC and the way it's reported on these things. So I, I just mentioned that to pick it out as one example where we have some clear data on, on how something's been reported and being misrepresented by the BBC. So that, that's very, very clear. The, the bigger question, I think, for, which leads back to what you were saying about like, you know, how do we get over the election is, is like, well, so, um, Justin Schleswig, who did some research looking at the BBC, found that its reporting on antisemitism was just flatly inaccurate. I mean, just forgetting, like, you know, distorting things. I mean, it just violated basic professional values of, like, um, you know, checking your sources, getting balanced quotations, stuff like that. Um, the Guardian and the BBC were very close to the sun, like, they had worse standards than, than any of the other press. So, it's not just that you have the general elite patterns of reporting, there was actually a qualitative difference, as you alluded to, which was more about actual professional values being abandoned. And, and I think that, that, that personally, I think that there's, and I'm just guessing here. Right. This isn't like research or anything. Um, My my reading of that is is two things. Number one, um, social media. So that, that's played a particular role in the way that the BBC starts to treat stories, particularly its very senior um, journalists who are called editors, but they're not editors of programmes. They're just people who are like the most senior journalists in that particular area, are very active on social media. Um, they have a large following on there. They they pride themselves on their contacts and driving stories in a very sort of kinetic news environment. known as that. And then there's, there's just complete collapse in editorial oversight that took place um, with the rise of Corbyn, which I think we could probably trace to the early days when there was a quite strong backlash. I don't know if you remember this, but like Laura Coonsberg did a report on shoot to kill because it was one of the initial attack lines on Corbyn that he wouldn't um, be able to support sort of sufficiently um, aggressive techniques against um, a terrorist attack. And you see this thing again and again, it's sort of like come back to the thing of the british state what they really didn't like about corbyn was his anti-imperialism yeah. and and and, and th- that's why they're going on with these issues of terrorism or whatever right well so Coonsberg sort of uh, did a rapport which was found to be misleading by the bbc trust and the complaint being rejected four times by the bbc so the bbc trust was is defunct now but it was like the oversightary body of the bbc and the bbc trust ruled against her even though the management had rejected the complaint a number of times, said that she had violated um, accuracy standards and because it was so important, um, because it's such an important area that this violated impartiality. And James Harding, who was then director of news, publicly said, well, fine, but we don't agree, um, and just dismissed it. And that was, I think, about a month or so before the trust was due to be wound up. So he said, thanks, but we, you know, that's fine. We, we, we've got no issue with it. So, I'm filling in the blanks here, but it looks to me like there was basically a failure in managerial editorial oversight in news. That, that from that point, some of the senior figures at the BBC seem to be lacking in any kind of like, uh, uh, professionalism, basically. And this is going to, again, if you don't mind me being like a little bit anecdotal in answering the question as well, like, um, this is going to sound a bit vague, but in, One of the first studies of um, BBC reporting and ITV reporting in the 1970s by the Glasgow University Media Group was followed up by a study which was funded by ITN to sort of debunk its findings. So they went back to look at the original data and they looked at some of the transcripts um, and and they found that, oh, well, you know, the Glasgow group said they said this, but actually you can see that they said that, right? Well, the, the reason was that, sometimes the BBC journalists would sort of deviate from the actual transcripts of what they were going to say. And when they did that, they tended to be more like more like right wing. They would just, they would start like reproducing, you know, the sort of common sense that they read in the daily mail and the press. But if they stuck to the script, right. uh, They would tend to be a little bit more balanced, a little bit more circumscript. Obviously this depends. Like if you're a journalist to the left, then the editorial line that's coming from the center is going to be disciplining you in the opposite direction. But there are, you know, so, Editorial controls can, in some circumstances, be important, and and Twitter is obviously, I mean, technically it falls within the editorial guidelines of the BBC, but it, it it's it's completely separate from all of that, um, all of that editorial oversight. And you see the same pattern, by the way, in news reporting. So Justin Schlossberg's uh, anti-Semitism report that I mentioned earlier, he found that the BBC website was very was very good, like it was always very balanced and very careful in the statements it made, and like television news was as bad as the sun. I I think there's been a failure of editorial oversight. And that's not even like um a left-wing or sociological critique of the BBC. That's just purely based on like basic professional standards really. And you but you see the same thing across the across the industry. I mean, look at the fucking sorry, look at the the Times, look at the Telegraph, like the way they report, you know, like these used to be respected uh news organizations and now I mean, they're just a joke. You know, they're just, I mean, does anybody believe anything that they read in the Times? Like, it, you know, it, it's its a highbrow tabloid now. It's sort of a boring thing to say. Oh, you know, the, the broadsheets have gone all like, you know, down market or whatever. Like, they, they haven't. They're still the same audience and everything. But like, their news values are just, you know, they're just all been junked basically.
0: With regards to the social media stuff, I think that's really interesting. The lack of editorial oversight of Twitter and the pressure on senior journalists you know they, they realise they've got the power they, they they take on a different role, don't they? Like and I know it's not in the BBC, but like Robert Peston was incredible in this election because he was just reveling in being anti Corbyn, like, you know, <coughs> in and this new role. And I mean we all know not you Tom, but we all know everyone um, listens to the Laura Kusburg is obviously obsessed with Boris Johnson like sexually and probably has definitely slept with him. Um but her <laughs> like Weird relationship with Johnson, and that for me was it was one of the n- most noticeable ways. All like, right, something's gone massively wrong with the BBC because the gloves are off; they don't care. She doesn't care that she's just saying. Like, and the Leeds general thing was so outrageous. You know, like hearing from my well placed source that you know a Labour activist is just assaulted. And 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 the thing is about that, which really we almost forget in this stuff. But the story was about. A child being, you know, treated on the floor—that was the original story. And and by focusing on this false assault, which luckily, you know, quote unquote assault, which luckily, luckily was filmed, the incident was filmed by a passerby, and there was there was no such assault at all. It completely detracted from the actual main story and just literally let the consumers. It was intended to, yeah,
2: you know, that that was the whole point of the briefing, like um. We could see what had happened, as you say, because it was filmed. But it's very clear. Got into the car, and one of the activists brushed somebody's head because he stepped back into the curb or something. And they would have had the conversation in the car, like you know. And then, and then they if we we can brief that, and that that will set the news agenda. I mean, this was kind of the context for the. I mean, what I found so extraordinary. About the way, one of the reasons, reasons I found it so extraordinary the way the BBC reported was that Peter Oborn had written this piece that they were all furious about, like which was basically arguing that senior uh, figures at the BBC were echoing claims that came from Downing Street, which hadn't been substantiated with evidence. You know, again, we're talked we're not talking about like political bias here. We're talking about basic professional values, which Peter Oborn has basically been chased out of the industry for, <laughs> for upholding when he made those allegations about BBC journalists and, and other people. He sort of did the faux pas of, of naming names. And he appeared on Amal Rajan's, um, with Amal Rajan on Rajan the, on the BBC. Amal Rajan's the BBC's, um, he's a BBC editor, but he's a sort of real man about town. Like, um, he, he presents lots of programmes. He was, I think he was sitting in for uh, somebody else. But he interviewed Obon as if he was like, you know, um, interrogating a politician. You know, it's really really quite ferocious kind of interview. And there was lots of that, you know, real pushback. And and so that, that was kind of the context for the election. You know, the public allegation had been made that senior journalists were not checking their sources and they were echoing government claims. And then, as you said, we had this one incident, which became, luckily for us, like very transparent on the facts. But if it hadn't, it's very clear what would have happened. It would have been... You know, labor, um, a labor activist allegedly assaulted, um, a conservative, um, special advisor outside the hospital. This is denied by, by labor. And we know that because when the early story broke, there was something about labor, I don't know, like, um, shipping people over there in taxis or something, you know, and, and, and that was being reported, but labor denies, you know, so the, the story, it was pretty clear that what was happening here was that, government minister messages uh, the most senior political journalist in the bbc who then relays the message to a million people on twitter and yeah it's it's a huge failure of editorial of professional values but again like it's the concept of it's in the context of a general election like you know to to not yeah. to do that i just yeah. you know I I, I don't think I, I wouldn't I wouldn't tweet something like that you know yeah. I've only got like a few thousand followers it's just it just seems insane to me yeah it's, uh,
1: that's what that's what gets me is that it's it's a basic question of editorial you know self editorial integrity and someone as senior as Koonsberg in that position knows exactly what kind of power that her Twitter feed has and whatever she, whatever message she puts out has, she's not naive about the uses of social media, you know, in the contemporary moment. And, you know, you talk about the kind of, I'm interested to ask, well, this sort of collapse of editorial integrity, basically at the very top levels is, you know, in one sense, it can be interpreted as, you know, you know, a a moment of panic and disarray at a time when, you know, the, the social media is, uh, disrupting the nature of um, contemporary political discourse, right? On the, on the other hand, you know these are senior people who understand the nature of the media and how far is someone like Kunzberg and other people, you know, t- you know, capitalising on this moment of um, of distortion and, and and fragmentation and complexity, you know. It, uh, thinking about Dominic, someone like Dominic Cummings who, you know, fully understands the nature of the way that discourse, political discourse works, and how far you know, it's possible to muddy the waters in terms of uh, the messages that have been put out, and how far I don't know, someone like Koonsberg is is complicit in that, you know?
2: I think she, um... I mean... You know, we, we don't we don't need and shouldn't speculate about what goes on in Laura Koonsberg's head. No. no, I think, um... <clears throat> she probably sees it as an extension of her um, her reporting, which is that you need to break ongoing stories, right? And you do that on Twitter because that is a kinetic news medium. And to, to go speak to like what you were just saying, yeah, the disruption of the industry. Well, the BBC, I mean, reputedly, the BBC journalists were told in 2010, tweet will be sacked. You know, I don't know how serious that was. It was probably just a encouraging people to get online the reason was that you know the BBC you know they're, they're not they're not as sort of um, unaware of the industry as they seem sometimes you know they know, they know exactly what they have a lot of metrics they they know exactly what they in the their industry is like and and um, you know where, where they're trying to go with it and they recognize Twitter you know, not early on particularly but um, I guess it was founded in 2008, maybe. Um, But, you know, it went through this massive period of growth. And the BBC now has a really big presence on these social media sites. I mean, not just like, you know, you guys probably follow like Breaking News or BBC Breaking or whatever. Like that's got huge amounts of followers. You mentioned Peston, he's got over a million followers. You know, Koonsberg's got over a million. Like That's more than... Almost any MP, like I think Johnson's now probably got about that amount. His Prime Minister, Theresa May, didn't have that many Twitter followers and she was Prime Minister. Corbyn does, but he's a massive outlier. You know, he's got loads more Twitter followers than than anybody else. So, you know, these are major, major public figures. So, you know, outside of celebrity, you just don't get followings like that. And it's because they're at the BBC. You know, it's not because Laura Coonsuck's brilliant. It's because she, uh, the position that she holds. And they actually, I think it's one of the quite interesting things about social media. I mean, I've been doing some research on this. I can't, I don't necessarily want to go into any detail because it's not, but I've not put it in for peer review yet. But if you, if you look at the BBC's following, it's enormous. But tw- the way Twitter, kind of functions is that people basically follow up they follow people with more followers than them so actually it appears to be a horizontal medium but in reality yeah. i mean in social networks anyway, you've got this thing called the friendship paradox which is that your friends will have more friends than you on average and the reason is that people make friends with people who are more popular so like and, and it continues all the way up so basically on on twitter it means that that, that people with loads of following, you know, it just, and that increases exponentially as well as you get more following, but you, a lot of it is basically the status of institutions and power positions being replicated on the platform that then sort of reverberates through the network. So like, you know, if you think of people on the left who have like enormous Twitter followings, like uh, someone like, you know, our friend and comrade Paul Mason, um, Ash Sarkar, um other people from Navarra, they're all people who've had some mainstream exposure that has en- enabled them to build up that platform. And if you haven't had that, I don't know exactly. I'm just sort of t- talking to top of my head to be like, you know, the sort of ceiling somewhere around like 30,000, 40,000 that you can get just through sort of self-promotion in, in in politics, I guess. So, yeah, the platforms have been really big. But the thing is, the BBC people have been on there with the BBC brand has made them huge. And, and they really have had a weighty intervention into that. Space by virtue of being the BBC, and they've invested in that, but on the one, but they've not really sought to, yeah, appropriately, in my view, implement editorial controls. And then, if you, if you combine that sort of new, like, sort of kinetic news environment, like the re- removal from the editorial structure to the political response to the Labour Party to a sort of broader crisis, I think, of the British establishment, you end up with this sort of perfect storm to um come back to your first question then about like what happened like with that election i mean i think those things do kind of combine to create this like you know extraordinary shitstorm which you know is it's surprising to watch but like i think if you it sort of makes sense if you think about it like that
0: one of the interesting things tom and i, I we probably mentioned it in the last podcast we did with you but and and the one of the reasons that you're eventually going to burn out from exhaustion is that media Research is always based on, you know, hard quantitative evidence and really quite dull, laborious work of going through loads and loads of recordings and tapes, like you said about the the Glasgow University one. That was, I think, that was actually one of my old PhD supervisors, Howard Davis, was in that, and he just said he used to just sit in rooms for days on days and days, watching videotape after videotape after videotape of the of, of news footage and coding it and so on into sort of. Biases and, and and so, as you said, with the anti Semitism stuff, there's been all these studies which show you know there's this huge misinformation campaign essentially. But whatever happens, and what I've noticed, and this is what must be so tiring the response of the BBC has always been to cry, This is a conspiracy theory. You know, mm. even our own beloved Hugh Edwards was like, It's a conspiracy, you know, we're not all monsters who are biased, and there's this weird hostility to evidence. Does that, is that significant in itself, the hostility to, the hostility to academic, I mean. I think it's
2: strange, but I think, I think from the perspective of the journalists, like they look at stuff like that and they're sort of like, you know, we're very busy people. We don't have time to read like, you know, content analyses, like to just tell us what what the story is. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here, right? Like number, number one, like, journalists don't tend to be very literate when it comes to like statistical analysis like now none of the content analysis that gets produced is, is in remotely complex or difficult to get your head around. but they just don't seem that interested in in that kind of research and I think you're right like fundamentally content analysis is, is pretty boring it's pretty boring to do and it's pretty boring to read but a lot of social science is like that you know like um, I haven't done a lot of content analysis myself you know my my work has more been looking at I sort of took a lot of that work and thought about the BBC, my sort of starting puzzle or question, if you like, was, that, well, we know what the BBC does. We know how it reports. Do we know why it does that? That's what I was interested in. So when it comes to the content analysis, you know, I, I rely on mostly, I mean, I did some stuff very early on in my PhD, but I've relied on the work of others, like very good work that's particularly these days. I mean, it comes out of Glasgow, but also Loughborough and, and Cardiff, all of which are very good research centers. And um, so The work of Mike Berry, for example, who's done a lot of stuff on the reporting of the financial crisis, but more more mainstream stuff on the BBC, has been commissioned by the BBC itself. And some of the researchers in um, Cardiff, I understand, have moved into the same building as the BBC. So these are not people who are... (laughs) That's relaying academic gossip, by the way, so you guys should know that because you're... (laughs)
0: True. <laughs>
1: no, it is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they shared a building in uh, in uh, Central Square in Cardiff. Yeah, I, I think it's it, it is a it's partly an aversion to statistics, but isn't there also a kind of a vein of you know journalism as a trade? You know, I think journalists hold to this sense of um, of kind is a is a peculiarly kind of British form of empiricism to journalistic integrity you know it's the idea of post-war humanism and we have a certain kind of empirical view of the world that we you know that the world is is it's complicated but it's interpretable if you like um and can be explained in straightforward ways to the public you know mm-hmm. and this is that this is that's a certain kind of way of looking at the world that is kind of averse to more theoretical readings of an ideological readings of the way that you know
2: social phenomena play out right yeah <laughs> and i think so, that's, that's definitely true. true but i mean i think in a way you're being in a way a bit too generous because it's, it's not that they're empirical and not interested in theory because like you know, a lot of the work that comes out on content analysis is very, very theory light. I mean, it's, it's, it's it's really empiricist research, um, just measuring things in in very straightforward ways. And, you know, my work was, was really very light on theory. I mean, that's partly because, you know, I basically see myself as a, as a researcher. Um, it's also because Verso just told me to get rid of any methods or theory or just cut all of it out. Right. And, um, actually I had an academic, um, colleague, uh, Invited me to go and talk on theory at one stage and I never did, but he said to me, um, you know, I was really interested in your book because there's no, there's no theory in it. Would you like to come and talk about theory? And I was like, anyway, my, my, my point is that a lot of this work is not, it's not remotely theoretical. It's, yeah. um, it's actually very, I think, I think, well, I try to make the book as accessible as possible. I try, as I try to do with like all, all of the work that I do. And obviously the longer you stay in academia, you know, that the less accessible your writing gets. I mean, you guys know that. And like, you start to absorb all kinds of jargon and terrible habits. But I do my best to try and make everything understandable and accessible. But it's just not, it doesn't cut through. Right. And yeah. so I think it's worse than you say. It's not, it's not an anti theoreticism. It's not a hostility to, to theory because this work isn't theoretical. It's a historic. It's, um, a hostility to, to academic evidence. That doesn't fit with their perception of where they think they fit in, in the social world. And that's yeah. fine. Like nobody likes to be described or, um, analyzed in ways that, that makes them feel uncomfortable. But I think, you know, it's, it's a particular feature of journalism. I think that, um, there's a certain insecurity there about what their, what their real role in society is. Because I mean, every single professional group, every class obviously has its own sort of, sense of like where it fits in but i think what's curious about journalism is that there's a quite strong mismatch between you know empirically what they seem to do mm-hmm. if you measure it in very straightforward ways and how they conceive of their role yeah. and you can see that a lot i mean that's why that there's always a certain tension between i think like the sociology of journalism and the ways that journalists like to talk yeah. about themselves but this come, this brings us this question of conspiracy theory, because it's not, you know, that's how they've classically now, they're all saying it, responding to, um, allegations of institutional bias, which is to say that any claim that there's any consistent patterns of reporting, which may, you know, benefit certain interests in society is, is a conspiracy theory. Well, that's, that's not an anti theory position. That's, to me, that's just an anti, Evidence position or an, or, I mean, I don't even know what to call it, but you see what I mean? Like, it's, it's okay. not, they, it's that they they will not accept. Um, that seems to me to be rejecting even the existence of institutions. You know, that's yeah. the, the curious thing about it because it's saying there is no social collective. There's nothing, there's nothing, no such thing as norms. There's no such thing as like consistent patterns of social relations. There are just people doing things and what they say they do is yeah. what happens. That, that That's as far as I can give any kind of clarity to the the counter-argument here. But what I find really curious about that is that, you know, their argument that they make, and I think I mentioned this in the Jacobin piece, about the BBC upholding impartiality, is itself based on a, an institutional argument about the purpose of the BBC, about the, the nature of what it does, and about the values that it upholds, which is obviously based on claims of collective... Um, Endeavor, let's say. So it doesn't really make any sense. Um, so I don't think in that respect it should be taken particularly seriously, but I, I think it does, t- it probably tells you something about the insularity of the, um, profession that they, they don't seem to be professionally equipped to deal with, um, criticisms. Or maybe I'm just in an uncharitable mood. I don't know.
0: <laughs> There's, I mean, there is something interesting about, um, the general dismissal of, I do think there's a class element to this. There's a general dismissal of all, as you said, all sort of structural analysis or power relations by, let's call them centrists. Yeah. Part of that is this, they love, the people who have grown up on, it's actually not the left, it's not the right, it's something else, you know, so everything's a conspiracy theory, you know, when you said the Iraq, you know, when we said the Iraq war was like illegal and about oil, oh, it's a conspiracy theory, you know, like it was a bit more nuanced than that, I think you'll find. And that tends to be wheeled out, in my experience, about the left, you know, all the time by people in the centre. And I think you you were writing stuff, you've written stuff on conspiracy theories in general, haven't you? Like, you know, the idea that so many people will dismiss, essentially, Marxism <laughs> as a conspiracy yeah. theory. <laughs> the idea that, you know, there's this... You know, well, a, a certain
2: type of Marxism, you know. I mean, I think, you know, what I've... What I've argued for is is basically the position that Marx laid out. I don't think it's remotely controversial that yeah. people make history, but they don't make it in circumstances of their own choosing. And this is just the foundational assumption of my discipline, you know. Um, and I, are you guys sociologists? You? Yeah,
0: well, I am, yeah. Well, yeah, cultural theory, but yeah. yeah. It, made, it does make life absolutely impossible because you try to, as you said, it's a fundamental worldview. And when you speak to people who just straight out deny that power exists. Yeah. <laughs> um sort of things like that. It's very hard to find a common. Yeah, ground. but
2: I mean it's not even just like okay, so the, the bats sorry, yeah, back to this conspiracy theory question. I mean it, there there are obviously other types of or like strains of Marxism which uh, want to sort of dispense with the idea of actual social actors and, and interests, which is what within the sort of left quarters, let's say, rather than the academic world that yeah. I try to push back against, and there were sort of arguments around this, particularly around the anti-Semitism crisis, which is, which, as you mentioned earlier, we don't really have the sort of time to get into as a sort of yeah. sidetrack. But, you know, the, the question just becomes like, at some stage, it just, the claim becomes any reference to actual human beings with interests, you know, acting strategically is itself some, a form of conspiracy theory. Which, you know, it's kind of bizarre, especially when it comes from people who, you know, may not call themselves a neoliberal and may not like the argument. But like, if you're, if you're a methodological individualist and at least you, you presumably believe in like, um, people acting in their own interests and you probably believe that that happens like collectively in certain circumstances, whether you think that's a good thing or not, I don't know. But like, um, you know, it even comes from those sort of quarters. I mean, yeah, it's it's a tiresome sort of thing, but obviously there's a difference between like acknowledging that social interests and, and and classes and sort of class fractions exist and act strategically or like um, you know, or or in some sort of latent fashion and saying that there's an all-powerful group that has kind of a plan. I mean, I think some of the sort of condescending pushback towards the left is you can always say about anybody who's an activist that your worldview isn't sophisticated enough right like i mean that's what slogans are like they're all but all claims on the world which try to simplify something into like one sentence are obviously going to do damage to like how the world actually is because obviously it's a complicated place but like you don't you can't just resist all truth claims on the basis that actually that that's not that's not nuanced enough because you have to say why actually a, a, a different slogan would be closer to the world as it actually functions uh, and i you know if you if you want to be condescending about any political activist or any political movement of course you can do it just by yeah. like picking holes in like um racists, yeah 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 i mean it, it, but it, it's it's pretty lazy i mean and it comes does come back to the other thing like you know twitter like rob burley for example like Picking people out from Twitter, you know, because there's so many people respond to him. Just pick, pick out the least informed sort of person and just respond to them. You know, Mr. So-and-so, like the egg with like eight followers (laughs) says that, you know, the BBC's bias against so-and-so. And And then this other, this other, um, you know, fuck where he says this. So, you know, luckily the BBC is performing its public service obligations.
0: What I wanted to ask, Tom, to what extent is there a danger, and I do think this sometimes we were focused on the BBC and I was focused on the BBC and, and getting incredibly angry and things like this. To what extent is, I'm not saying the BBC is a red herring, is there a danger sometimes we focus on the BBC, the media, that we lose sight of the overall, you know, this one part of an overall pushback against Corbynism and socialism, and obviously it played a m- very big role, but mm. um, it's important not to lose sight of the, the fact that the, it was the whole... State yeah. in many ways. Is put yeah,
2: I, I agree with that. You know, completely. Although, I mean, I agreed with something that that you'd written about this actually, which was that if anything, I think a lot of socialists have gone more in the other direction and sort of said, "Well, actually, the media doesn't matter." You know, that, that some sort, some form of kind of resistance to the power of media is is evident in all in all kinds of forms. That you know, that its powers of persuasion have been exaggerated, and so on. And in some quarters, that had had entered something of a common sense on the uh, UK left, I think, um, to the point where I noticed when the um, election was taking place that a lot of people were suddenly becoming agitated or annoyed at the media, at which point I was thinking, well, you know, yes, I mean, this, this is the nature of the institution. So all of that said, I mean, I think to an extent, We've gone too far the other way, but my, my sort of traditional position was exactly to insist on what you just said, which is that the BBC, to use sort of Stuart Hall's language, is, is like the rest of the media in structural subordination to, um, the, the ruling class. I don't, I don't know if Hall used the term ruling class, but, but that's how I would think about it. That there's an infrastructure of ruling, of class power in this country and the media. Is subordinate to to the, to the real powers, and to be slightly sort of uh, crass about it, uh, the way Hall thought about was primary definers and secondary definers. Who were the primary definers? That was the the Secretary of State, we presume, who messaged Laura Koonsberg. Laura Koonsberg was the secondary definer who then tweeted it out on Twitter. So their people, it's the state. And um, the corporate interests in society who develop the arguments and also people in think tanks and the other sorts of strategic elements of the different class factions that develop the arguments and develop the political strategies. And then the media relays that stuff. But the, the way, obviously, it's slightly complicated by the fact that certain sections of the media stands in structural subordination to the, you know, the, the ruling class. But it, it's a faction of it. And also... There are people within the media who are themselves important components of that of that power structure. So obviously Murdoch, but you know, certain senior journalists and editors who clearly play an important role ideologically in the power structure, but also in certain cases, you know, have into um, interconnections with the, the capitalist class and and and, and certain and, and finance. And you you can see that. I mean not only in the history of the BBC and its close relationship to the state in terms of exchange of personnel but somewhere like The Economist for example where the personnel who are involved there you know uh, are drawn from the political and economic elite and they're involved in things like business intelligence initiatives and so on, you had a lot of spooks there so yeah, yeah, that's how the media operates and I
0: agree so George Osborne to the Evening Standard and relations and Um, and things like that it's all there, it's all there. It's just, it's, it's right in front of us, isn't it?
2: Lebedev, um, who is uh, owns the Independent,
0: mm-hmm.
2: he, you know, he's a part of those high society kind of um, groups. Yeah. They, the, the, uh, the Guardian started reporting on stuff as if to say, okay, look at this dodgy Russian stuff going on, you know, as if it was part of that kind of. You know, Putin's effort to, and the Russians generally effort to sort of undermine British democracy. But, you know, what well, obviously what you're seeing there is like ruling class factions, international, transnational ruling class factions. What did Lev for Deb do when he came to the UK? He sponsored like the Hampton Court flower show thing that they have. Hampton Court was owned by Henry VIII and like uh, they have a thing there where, well, obviously it's a flower show, but it's, it's like one of those society things around London where all of the great and the good and the super rich and people from the Sunday Times Rich List are gonna be hanging out. So, you know, they're just buying into British high society. And that that's how these things actually function. So to go back to like conspiracy theory, you know, we can we can examine political economy, but you can also look at these actual people who are, you know, yeah. you know, Murdoch, Levedev, George Osborne, um Boris Johnson obviously has been at the spectator, you know, these are real flesh and blood people and actually existing ruling class institutions that d- d- develop these kinds of strategies.
0: And the ironic thing is, I think it's, it always cracks me up, and this is why I tried to, when we, we're doing like a Marxist reading group at the moment in Cardiff, but like in the absence of of Marxism or as, as like a, a framework of understanding, people fall back on, as you said, these Nonsense stuff about russia it's like it's like no it's 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 far more simple as the the ruling class as you said is is operating right in front of your eyes and it you know and, and in the absence of Marxism, people will just fall back on like yeah it was Russia or you know mm. or it's you know facebook algorithms and those are things are in you know probably important in and of themselves but it's, it's it's much simpler in a way, yeah. And the, the, the way the agenda is just so brazenly being
1: set by neoliberals at that, you know, uh, at that level. I was listening to a BBC, uh, just a short segment on the World Service the other day about the coronavirus, right? This just an anecdotal, you know, uh, story from a couple of days ago where the story, you know, is about obviously the outbreak in China. And, that, you know, the, f- the first point they made, uh, this particular report made, was that obviously the, the death toll at the moment, right? second point you'd think you know the massive humanitarian concern or the concern for you know people in China no the second point was you know how how much is this going to affect the Chinese economy how much are Chinese are the Chinese worried about this mm. the impact on the economy yeah. you know it's just so you know the way that clearly is sh- you know these these concerns are shaping the way that we understand the world and and, and the way that that an event that is so clearly a, a humanitarian issue, right? I don't think anyone would agree that a, a disease outbreak is a basic human problem. <laughs> Yet, immediately, the way the BBC frame it, you know, perfectly impartially, <laughs> but as um, an economic threat, subtle ways in which, the, you know, the agenda is, is being skewed in, in those directions, I think is really worrying.
0: As part of the overall hostility to socialism you know, and the state coming together, one of the interesting things that I mean, because you wrote your your excellent article on Jacobin, you know, the death of the BBC. And when we were looking through, you know, Jacobin's coverage of the BBC after it, you know, we read the um, the speech by Jeremy Corbyn on media reform. Uh, I think it was, what, two, 2000, back from 2018, you know, British press for the many, not the few. Um, and it was really, it was fascinating about it, the, you know, the Labour's, Labour's plans for media reform, including implementing Leveson 2. Um, to what extent is... Do you think that the the Labour policies on spe- you know, specific policies on on media reform and implementing the recommendations of the Leveson inquiry drove this sort of media hostility? Because if you look at the time, you know, recommendations of Leveson, you've got like the Telegraph and uh, other associated right wing the press like shrieking saying this is the death of the free press. Whereas I think yeah. I recall about Leveson, it's literally saying <laughs> you shouldn't be able to hack like dead people's phones without scrutiny and, and and you need to sort of uh declare the relationship between the media and the police and, and on all these these things and do you think there was like a, a panic about labor coming in specifically like so the media felt specifically under threat
2: oh yeah there's no there's no doubt that the, the press regarded labor as a threat on that basis i mean they they have done really you know, people forget this, but Miliband likes started to um, turn on um, Murdoch anyway. I mean, it was, it was people remember imposing with the sun, and but this was classic kind of Miliband, You know, like he would he would sort of move left and then move right again, and it's partly because it's partly because he was trying to please the P L P, but actually, Corbyn and McDonald did that anyway. But the difference was that uh, they, you know, the P L P just absolutely hated um, Corbyn and McDonald, whereas Miliband, you know, he was trying to be a bit more of a peacemaker, which in a way. It was less of an option for initially for Corbyn and, and McDonnell, but that, so that, that they Labour committed from that point and in 2017 to implementing Leveson two and the recommendations of Leveson, and the, the, they obviously represent a threat to the exceptional interest of the press. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really apply to the BBC in the same way. But I think what you see with the BBC is this sort of extraordinary naivety about how the or, or disinterest let's say about how the news agenda gets set you know so for them it's sort of it's almost seems to be politically neutral the extent to which certain stories sort of break and the prevalence that they're given but obviously it's coming from the press which represents you know sectional interest i mean this is the this is the millionaires press and the the central principle for them you know they have their own political agendas uh, which is, explains a lot of what has driven the anti-Europe sort of sentiment in this country. A lot of that comes from from the press and the imbalance there, which is different to, you know, how Europe is regarded amongst you know the majority of like, yeah. let's say like uh, you know the administrative class, the professional classes, and a lot of the business classes as well. But they obviously have narrow business interests as well, and there's there's no doubt that they responded to. Uh, the Labour Party in that way but there's there's obviously other things going on too, I mean they they just hate the left and that's been historically um, you know the function of the right has been to attack the left and to attack the left ferociously, not just socialists but like mild social democrats, you know people like Kinnock who was trying to drag the party to the right and still were absolutely monstered by the Sun and the Daily Mail anybody to the, to the left of Blair is completely unacceptable to them and so, so there's, there's that going on in the background. There's the fact that they represent like a, in general, like the interests of millionaires. And there's the sort of sexual and interests that they, that they have as well. I mean, they've been, and this, the kind of hostility towards the left and the idea that that sort of anti-communism, I think. The sum of that is broader than just the press. You know, that, that, that's, that seems to be prevalent amongst the older people in the BBC as well. This notion that essentially the left is, um, an anti-democratic, authoritarian kind of political movement. So it, we reached this kind of stage where they'd convinced themselves that Jeremy Corbyn, who has on, objectively one of the most liberal, well, probably one of the, the most liberal records of any, uh, MP in the Houses of Parliament, was an authoritarian who was going to send everyone to the gulags and so on. And then what, what, what all the sensible, level headed people were saying was that no, that, you know, that the left doesn't want to shut anything down. The left is actually trying to increase media freedom in, in any meaningful sense of the word. Um, the only thing we're interested in is a more representative, uh, more democratic and more accurate media that's going to facilitate democratic life in this country. I mean, fundamentally, those institutions are opposed to that, you know, because they are conservative institutions. And I think, um, I get unpopular saying this, but, you know, I think conservatism is a fundamentally dishonest political movement. As I mean, that's how Phil Burton Clark describes it. Um, you know, Phil B.C., who does the blog, a uh, very public sociologist. And one of the points that he makes is that, you know, conservatism as a movement, as a as a political movement, is about selling elite interests and making them popular. So that means they have to lie in a way that, that, that the left do not have to lie. No. Um, the left, everybody can lie in some circumstances, and often it will be useful to do so. But there's something fundamental and structural about the conservatism, which means it has to spread lies in order to create popularity. So there's a reason why the, the press have a vested interest in in reporting accurately, right? They do not want a rule that says they have to, they have to say things that actually happened or they have to report things accurately because it will disadvantage the interests that they, that they represent. So I think that there's, there's, there's more going on than just their business interest, but it's a big part of it. But they overlap considerably, obviously, because like the political project that those, those institutions represent itself is tied up with being able to lie. Being able to cheat, and also the business models are tied up with an incestuous relationship with the political elite, which was exposed by Leveson. So without that stuff, you know, like that—that's Murdoch's whole thing, you know. So like, obviously, he's not going to want any interference with that.
0: And if you look at if you look at like what Corbett proposed for the BBC, you know, it's literally just like the election of BBC board members, in the great decentralisation of the BBC with you know local and regional boards, and I mean. By any measure, that's fairly timid stuff. Mm. Um, right, We're coming up to the hour mark, Tom. I mean, what I think is, the issue now is, and I know you could probably going to get it from both sides because you find, you, as you said... That's I think, how I know I'm right, when I get attacked from <laughs> both yeah, sides. As, yeah, as, 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 you, as you were saying off air, you're in the bizarre situation of, you know, for most people, you know, most people I know now on the left, I'm not going to watch the BBC ever again. Like the trust is completely gone. And I think this is kind of unprecedented. Um, mm-hmm. in how much it's, <laughs> it's alienated the people that it should be now relying on, as you say, to save it. But what, what is going to have, what is going to happen to the BBC? And, you know, why should, why should we, why should we care? So. The current proposal that's coming from the
2: government is that the license fee would be decriminalized, which means that there would be a decline in revenue, because obviously it means that people don't have to pay their TV license if they don't want to. And in the longer term, there's a proposal to move towards a subscription service, which is more or less something that the neoliberals, I mean, neoliberals in a very narrow sense, like people who work at the Institute for Economic Affairs, and also... Murdoch had been ab- advocating for a long time so in the 1980s there was a review into broadcasting called the Peacock Committee and they wanted to break up the BBC but they didn't They didn't want it to take advertising for, for various reasons, partly because the advertisers and and and, and Murdoch didn't want them to do that but also because they said advertising is not good for consumer markets because it doesn't give people what they want it just gives the advertisers what they want which is interesting and it's true but like or, ordinarily neoliberals neo- neo- aren't that that honest what they said was that you need to build up the private market and then we can develop a consumer market based on cable which at that point was going to be the thing that would break up the the broadcasting monopoly um because it meant that basically anybody could broadcast so initially they had something called um wavelength scarcity and it meant that only a certain amount of people could broadcast so you need to allocate particular wavelengths to broadcasters but with cable anybody could do it right so you can have lots of providers and people can can get what they want so they developed this kind of model of could we keep the bbc and maybe want to sort of you know trim it down it can have a particular kind of niche interest and if people want it then they can subscribe so that that's kind of where we're heading and I'm arguing against that. And it's obviously a very difficult position to be in because, as I've been pointing out to the BBC, not that it listens to me, that if you keep performing so badly in, in upholding your basic democratic functions, that nobody on the left is going to be in any mood to rally to your defence when the Tories come from you. And that's exactly where we are. Yeah. Why do I think we need the BBC? Well, you know, I'm not arguing for the BBC on the basis of how we actually find it. It's on the principle of having a public, accountable infrastructure. If the BBC is removed and it doesn't exist, I mean, just purely in strategic terms, from the perspective of the left and for a socialist future, if you don't have that, people are not going to want to create it and have an extra cost on top of it. But also you're losing all kinds of expertise in terms of, like, I mean, the infrastructure in terms of like the staffing and all of that—it would be very difficult to create something from scratch. Also, you've got the fact that it's an you know it's an actually existing institution that we could transform for the good, which should belong to us, so we could make it actually do what it says on the tin. Which is all I've really been interested with the BBC is, you know, like I'm oft- often called a critic of the BBC, but. I'm not really. I just want people to see the BBC as it is rather than how they imagine it to be and to think about, well, how could we get get it to where, where we want it to be? So just briefly on the subscription stuff, the principle is that everybody has to have access to the, these particular programmings, services, information, technology. That's a basic socialist principle, right, of, of equality. So we don't price people out of like things that allow you to participate as a citizen, it's not even a socialist principle; it's a liberal principle. Um, but the second element of it is that actually it's very efficient. So if you have a digital economy, um, that the, the most efficient way of funding it is you you fund it publicly at the point of production, and you make it universally available. So you know, a, a capitalist market, in order to monetize stuff, you have to exclude people from consuming it. Well. We, we don't have to do that with public digital technology. We can make it v- available in perpetuity, available to everybody, and we don't have to have algorithms which encourage us to consume things on the basis of, like, you know, clickbait and all kinds of, like, um, cultural sort of pathologies of the capitalist digital public sphere, which I think, like, are becoming even, like, obvious to people who are not as interested in this sort of stuff in a, in a very straightforward way of, like, not having healthy relationships to things like Facebook or Twitter. And, you know, you can see it. I mean, we're probably going to be more online, as it were, than most people. But, like, nobody finds these forms of online engagement very satisfying. So I think there's basically an opening for public digital media, and I think the BBC is a very important institution to defend as part of that infrastructure, which technically should belong to us, but in fact, effectively belongs to the state, or or at least more to the state than it does to us. So, what I'm arguing for is a defence of the BBC as something that should belong to us, but not at simply a defence of the BBC as it is. Like I just don't, and I'm, I'm nervous that what's going to happen is that the left won't care. And the the liberals will jump in, as they always do, and say why the BBC is important for battling fake news or whatever. And they're just going to embarrass themselves, and Dominic Cummings is going to eat them alive what what they need to do what we need to do is develop a positive vision of public broadcasting in the 21st century which is based on a realistic account of the bbc's failings and that has to include like all the things which we've been discussing in terms of the failures of its political reporting not just like you know at the senior level of editorial staff but things you mentioned earlier about like you know its reporting of Misreporting of like humanitarian and and social concerns as being economic issues. The ways in which like region, whole regions of the UK have just been neglected by the way the BBC reports. The way the, you know the extent of elite capture there, um, and and a lot of the critiques that come from the right are sort of wrong, but like in elements of them are correct. Right, it is a London-centric organisation. It is run by elite Oxbridge types, but that's why the left needs to mobilise. A different version of those arguments, because we leave it to the liberals who are basically did go to those colleges, um, do get paid 200,000 pounds a year, do send their kids to private school, do think the Guardian's brilliant, do live in zone two in London. Like, they're just not going to be able to, um, and I'm not saying they're bad people or anything. I just mean that they are from that milieu. Um, they're, they're just going to mess up the arguments basically and that and and I think Dominic Cummings and and Boris Johnson are very useful they're very used to making those arguments against those people and what was interesting you know what what socialists can potentially offer to this argument is a vision of a different BBC that's based on a criticism of the bbc as it exists now but if we don't have that i just think it's just the end of it basically and i think we, we will we, they're right about one thing i mean jonathan Friedman isn't wrong without the bbc things could get much worse yeah. um but what he where he's wrong i think is just making arguments and to get anyone anywhere or actually defend the bbc effectively
0: yeah yeah the, the issue for me and i've said this before and one of the scary things is yeah, I've always, you know, the, the BBC, the arm of the state, or not, you know, not really into it. But if you look at what happened in what's happened in America, for example, and and what happens is when people completely lose their faith in in any form of sort of news or liberal institutions, you know, people double down and go down rabbit holes of relying on things like Alex Jones and other alt right news sources like Breitbart and stuff because they've lost faith in. The, the, the proper news for, for for good reasons but then once that happens it's almost impossible to get people back you know and it's really and I, I think it'll be very difficult to actually build socialism I remember there was some graphic during the Trump uh, campaign where most of the people mobilised to vote for Trump were getting their news from alt-right news sources and if you for all it's failings if the BBC collapses entirely I don't see how it'll be possible for a for a, if if you have everyone sort of bunkered down and, and dug into these right wing positions or even if they if we bunker down into the left um without something that's potentially could still potentially let be represented a democratic public sphere i don't see how we'd be able to reach people if that makes sense it it makes the idea of pulling people back from from the brink or or providing political education or, yeah. or whatever seem a lot more difficult to me
2: yeah i mean i think you know it, we shouldn't exaggerate too much like um how useful the bbc is in that regard but i think what it what it holds out for it i don't think it's really laying the groundwork for a good understanding of the world particularly but it does embody a sort of sense of collective you know, it has a liberal nationalism to it, really. That embodies a certain shared sense of um, meaning, if you like. And you know, Will Davies has has written about this a lot. And I I think there's something there. I think also there's something more though, which is that what the BBC potentially is 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 also a platform for different perspectives now it doesn't actually do that because obviously it marginalizes certain perspectives more than others and again this is kind of a liberal pluralistic defense to the bbc but i think it stands that it is okay for us to like see conservative perspectives and the way that different people think and to have a plat a joint platform that can can act as a dialogue and a meeting and stuff now this is kind of like the rob burley version of what Justifies what they're doing because they think that they're, they're amplifying people from different sides of the political conversation. Um, they're not doing that very effectively, but the principle of that I think is a really good one. And when I've been arguing for more sort of detailed, like blueprints, like at the media reform coalition of what the BBC should look like, you know, one of the arguments I have been trying to make is that the idea of a collective platform that's produced much more locally, but um, is disseminated nationally and actually I would like it to be international right so we could have public digital media in different countries which have shared culture which we can all share of each other so like you know you I mean you guys are a Welsh podcast right if you grow up in London you don't get from the BBC what it's like to grow up in Wales you probably get it inversely because of the sort of na- imperialist nature of the British state but like I would like a BBC that does that. That means that you you are able to understand different parts of the UK, you're able to understand different parts of the world. So I don't it maybe that's just a different version, I think, of the the argument that you were making, that it's not you know, it's not necessarily gonna give us a shared language, but it's there's there's something there that that gives us some sort of sense, like you say, of like um an, an imperfect sort of public sphere that yeah. embodies some sort of sense of purpose, but also just doesn't just disappear into total kind of fantasy. I mean, say what you like about the BBC, but like, you know, if the, the alt-right and, and, you know, the mainstream right, you know, they really do live in um, a, a fantasy world. Yeah. And that's partly why the, they think the BBC is biased, by the way, because the BBC, it can't reflect... Large portions of that, because it would violate its regulatory structure. So it can't it can't report in the same way as it expressed us, because they can't just make shit up that isn't about the Labour Party, because it would you know it would violate the basic kind of public purposes of what the BBC does. So I think basically if it became unregulated, yeah, we would lose that sense of collective. I don't know. I shouldn't say sanity because it's not right. You know what I mean? Like that—that shared sense of like some sort of dialogue or
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: understanding.
1: I think yeah, and what you're hinting at as well is the fact that, and you know, you talk about in um, in the Jackman article. You know, these are relatively straightforward um, changes to make. You know, actually have um, representative. Uh, people on the BBC board, you know, don't just elect, you know, appointees from um, the the big public schools or Oxbridge or wherever else actually have a representative mm. people say in terms of the governance and oversight of this massive institution, which we I all know. pay, you know, then it's I mean, not that's a, ra- a particularly radical or impossible, you know, um,
2: transition to make is, is my point. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Nothing I propose on the BBC um, is in the least bit radical. It's all based on what the BBC should be doing. Like, I, I mean, I haven't, like, taken my idea of, oh, this is what I would like the BBC to be like. What I try to do with proposals on the BBC is look at what the BBC says it does and then look at the actual existing BBC, how the institution functions, and then try to think about, okay, well, what are the things that stop the BBC doing what it, it, it claims to do? Could, well, how could we address that if we were going to, like you know, reform and really tweak its governance in ways that would make it more likely to perform the sort of social function that it claims for itself. So, you know, you, you get, I said, well, number one, you get rid of all governmental influence altogether. So the, the BBC, you know, now the Downing Street is threatening, that they're, they're furious because the BBC, Tony Hall, the director general of the BBC, has stepped down and they wanted to influence the next director general um, and they're hopping mad about it. They're, they're perfectly open about the fact that they think they should be able to run the BBC as a, as a government department. So, I mean, that's completely inappropriate for it. um. You know, that would make the BBC. Well, like, I think it is a state broadcaster. We don't have time to get into that, but like, it would make the BBC a government broadcaster yeah. if that was the case. Actually, um, um, so get rid of gov- all governmental influence. Well, if you get rid of all governmental influence, you either have a group of people who decide what we should be talking about and thinking about and which programmes should be made, or we have an institution that's responsive to the audience, which actually, by the way, is what the BBC claims for itself. They claim that they're responsible to licence fee payers, not not politicians. I mean, you know, the empirical facts are different, but that's the claim that they make. So, yeah, everything that I've laid out and everything that Corbyn
0: proposed... Tom, how would you respond? Presumably this would come under your critique of like the liberal defense to BBC, but you see people, I think even, uh, Frankie Boyle and people have been saying like, oh, you want to get rid of David Attenborough, do you? You want to get rid of all the amazing arts and music programs and stuff. Because that's what I see people who are defending the BBC sort of go, go for as if, as if I'm criticizing like Match of the Day or, or, you know, the, the, the good things on Radio Six. But that's what's interesting to me is that there is, there are good, obviously, really good, there's obviously really good shows and things still on the, still on the BBC. And no one is, no one is advocating doing away, doing away with the good things. It's, it's, it's the current affairs and, and politics, which we're mainly concerned about at the moment.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's difficult because, like, obviously, politically engaged people tend to think about the politics of the BBC. And I'm more guilty of this than anybody because every time I talk about the BBC, I just dive in with, you know, things that I think about. <laughs> And obviously it does a lot more than that. I mean, I think it's, you know, there are lots of problems with the cultural production as well, which we'd want to address. Like, um, not so much with the areas that you mentioned, uh, but basically what happens, and again, we don't really have time to get into that because it'd be a whole new discussion. But what happens with the BBC every time it's tapped politically is it appeals to the public, not on the basis of its journalism. But on the basis of programming that it knows to be popular and there will be some a bunch of PR people sitting in a room figuring out what arguments work with the public. And I was saying if a couple of months ago, we know what's gonna happen, it will be David Attenborough and it'll be Fleabag as soon as they come for the BBC. Well, that's what's happened. <laughs> I mean, literally those are the arguments that are being like um being made. Now, in terms of like what Frankie Boyle was saying, I mean the thing is the arguments. It, it, I mean it's true, like right, it's obviously true. But at some point, you have to acknowledge that journalism is central to the BBC's public purpose. And at what point are we going to have a serious conversation about the BBC's failings in that regard? And you know, I'm all for David Attenborough and and, and Fleabag and probably other things that have been on the BBC. I'm not a cultural critic, but um, and. Yeah, public broadcasting is much more than the news, but we—I don't think that at this stage you, you can make an, an argument in defence of public broadcasting purely on that basis. Part of the reason why, strategically, it's changed slightly is because of the enormous amount of money that's been put into these expanding platforms, which means that their program investments are just off the scale. So a lot of people who are subscribing are getting access to enormous amounts of programming I and mean, a lot of shite, obviously, but like. <coughs> So much programming that actually doesn't make the BBC as good a sell as it used to seem as a as a as a program producer. So a lot of what a lot of what the BBC does actually it, it's one of its niches is in journalism and is in news and current affairs. But obviously that's not a good argument to be making now either because that looks mm. kind of appalling. So um, I think the the BBC basically faces two threats, a political threat that comes from the Johnson government and the way it's boxing itself in over its reporting of Corbynism and the left. And number two, the threat from the platforms. And they they both put the BBC in, in serious peril. So I think an answer has to be based on both. It has to be why do we believe in non-commercial cultural production? And that's a whole different conversation. I think it's a really important one that the left needs to have that's quite underdeveloped. And number two... What is the, why do we need public media to perform the democratic function of journalism, which is obviously what we've been talking about today. And you can't just say, let's say the BBC because Philippe Fleabag and David Attenborough, like you need to get to those core democratic functions. It's not something that Netflix or Amazon are going to do, obviously. So it's also not something that the Daily Mail is going to do.
1: If Amazon and Netflix do, which they might, then we need to be really worried, <laughs> you know, about the journalistic integrity of the BBC. And, and by then, yeah, I'm not it... inviting them to
0: do it. but they would do it badly. Tom, anything else you want to you want to talk about maybe, that you haven't you haven't covered or or promoted? People or... have probably heard enough from me. By now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, all right, so we'll wrap up now. Have you um, have you got anything else coming out soon, or? I got coming out soon, not for a little while. Um,
2: shout outs, <laughs> Dan Hind. Um, obviously, I do a podcast with Dan. Uh, media democracy, if people want to check that out. Um, media reform, media reform coalition, where I work. Um, Leo Watkins, if you don't follow him on Twitter, he's doing really interesting stuff on uh, socialist media policy. Okay. And,
0: um, everyone,
2: all the good people in the Labour Party.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Happy days. Tom, thanks so much for coming on, mate. Um, been fantastic as always. Um, we're going to tweet out your articles and your various bits of research around the BBC and the articles by like, Peter Robon that we used in this. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, keep finding a good fight on Twitter. Keep having awesome hair. And <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, yeah, we're just sat you. We're just sat here like both of us hats, both of us
1: hats on because we're, we're bald. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah
0: th- th- thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Cheers, thanks for having so, me. It's such an important topic. And yeah, we'll see you soon, mate. Thanks a lot. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Okay, thanks for listening, guys. Another great episode. Thanks so much, Tom. In terms of shout-outs and beefs, I don't really have any beefs. I'm in really a good mood, so it's just me shout-outs for me. Um, I went up to Blinding for Stinyog on the weekend with a bunch of... Really good friends and comrades. It we had a brilliant time. Indod are a fantastic, really interesting group. Doing some stuff on sort of radicalism, radical Welsh independence and socialism. A lot of sort of anarchists involved. Some lot of really interesting ideas. So you can definitely check out Indod and the, the blog because they're regularly publishing it extremely interesting stuff. So shout out to the people who made that possible. So shout out to our dad Hugh, who drove us all the way up from South Wales to Blaenavistynog. Shout out to everyone involved in Company Bro. Sal Williams is like a hero of the national movement and just an overall hero for sort of setting up police community enterprises. Obviously, Kerry, Robert Idris for our kind of podcast, which will be coming out shortly. For Grantley for helping us out with uh, technical difficulties with the podcast that I I couldn't do myself because I was unsupervised by Nathan Kieran. <laughs> um, and obviously to Ellen and of course Maya for showing us around and making us feel really welcome in Blind for which is a fantastic place that you should all visit. And that's it for me, I think. I guess. Any beefs or shouts from you, Nick?
1: No, you I've got... uh <laughs> <new> boy. <laughs> uh, no, I've got no, uh, no shout-outs. No, I'm, I'm not in a good mood. so But I have got beefs with anyone who hasn't shortlisted me for any of the jobs I've applied for over the last couple of months. Scam. So basically, fuck you. huss you in hell.
0: Okay. Um, <laughs> Fairly comprehensive.
1: Uh, yeah. And
0: also, you know, all the people who are about to give you a job are now like, nah. <laughs> <you."> <laughs> yeah, <we're all> <laughs> Wow, I withdraw that email. Oh, like
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> Actually, that's possible because yeah, I've emailed a
1: lot of people recently. So, um. so if
0: you're listening, give Kieran a, a job <laughs> um, or you can subscribe to his OnlyFans.
1: Yeah, you can gift. Uh, or go on Kieran, Kieran's Amazon I accept, list. I do accept gifts. I he says he
0: needs shoes. I do see need some new shoes. Because you've got sole, holes in the soles of yours oh. and your, your, your socks are coming through the. Yeah, I quite like some new. Flapping shoes. right there.
2: When you walk, <laughs> the sole flaps around,
0: and <laughs> so you know, crown. and the knapsack you have over, you know, the sort of, which is basically a bit of cloth wrapped around a piece of stick. Yeah, that's, that's, my, all, that, that's my bag. That's my all frayed and, you need yeah, a, and you, frayed. and you need a new handkerchief for it, so yeah. chip in for that. Um, <laughs> 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 all right, so a new, um, yeah,
1: just a new, just a new shoes and uh, yeah, okay, knapsack.
0: All right, so thanks so much for listening and. As ever, chuck some money on Patreon. Um, follow us on Twitter if you don't already. I'm assuming if you listen to you follow us, but you know, tell your friends to listen and follow us at Desolation Wales. Um, stay tuned because we've got some excellent guests and episodes lined up. And that's it. Thanks for listening and we'll chat to you soon. See you soon. Bye.
2: Bye. Tom, I'm currently ten miles outside of Beaverton, unable to get inside the town proper. We do not have any reports of fatalities yet, but we believe that the death toll may be in the hundreds of millions. Beaverton has only a population of about 8,000, Tom, so this would be quite devastating. Any word on how the survivors in the town are doing, Mitch? We're not sure what exactly is going on inside the town of Beaverton, uh, Tom, but we're reporting that there's looting, raping, and yes,
0: even acts of cannibalism.
2: My God, you've, you've actually seen people looting, raping, and eating each other.
0: No, no, we haven't actually seen it, Tom. We're just reporting it.